Good morning. Uh, my name is Reese. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, if you could find Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34 in your Bibles, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, in this text, Jesus talks about treasure. Jesus talks about our masters. Jesus talks about worry. Um, in this teaching, it might seem like these topics are a little all over the place, or maybe even in some ways unrelated, but there is a thread that we're going to follow throughout this text. And so my hope and my prayer is that we can follow that together and really land on some truth that can transform us, really mark our lives. Because we all, we all have treasures, don't we? Um, I, know, I know for me, one of the first treasures I can remember having was this t-shirt. It wasn't just any t-shirt. I went to a rugby camp, a Team Canada rugby camp, when I was 15 years old. And it was a hot summer day at the University of Victoria. We were on the field, and um, myself and some other rugby players in high school, we were being coached by some of the members of Team Canada. And it was like my dream come true. Like, I was buzzing. I was asking them all these little questions about their life. They were probably like, this kid is so annoying. And I just kind of kept, you know, thinking to myself, I got to pinch myself. I must be dreaming. And at the end of the time, uh, they gave us all T-shirts. Just said, you know, Rugby Canada on it. And I brought this T-shirt home. I put it up on my wall. Uh, and I stared at it every day. I thought to myself, oh my goodness, there's that t-shirt again. It was so cool. Um, one day, like teenage boys do sometimes, I decided to take it off the wall and to cut the sleeves off of it. Um, and so I got the scissors from the kitchen, and I thought, this is going to look great. And I brought the shirt down, and I started taking the scissors to it. And about halfway through, three quarters of the way through, I realized I was cutting my t-shirt in half. And so I looked at it, and I thought, this is the worst decision I've ever made in my life. And I put the t-shirt down, and I just left it there for days, just cut in half. It was like my reminder of, like, you've made the biggest mistake, and that my treasures don't last very long. And we all have masters, don't we? I don't, I don't think it'll take long for us to figure out who our masters are um, when we just look at our screen time on our phone or when we look at our credit card statement. We all have masters. It's just a matter of who is our master. And we all worry, too. Isn't worry prevalent in our time today? It's a ruthless taskmaster in so many of our lives. Controls us. Decides for us what we do with our time. Exhausts us over relationships, debt, existential crises. It's not relenting. We all worry. And so Jesus' teaching this morning, it's profoundly relevant in all of our lives. And the Sermon on the Mount, it's like his manifesto for the kingdom. He's laying out all the necessary truths that you need to know for life in his kingdom and following him. And so you can just imagine standing shoulder to shoulder with other listeners 
listening to Jesus speak some of these truths for the first time. And you can hear the audible gasps. I, want, I think it's helpful for us to immerse ourselves in that kind of environment to really truly grasp how crucial this sermon is in following Jesus. And so let's read together Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. So starting in verse 19, reading out of the NRSV. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who seek all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the centering big idea that I want us to keep in mind this morning. Prioritizing Christ's kingdom requires resisting the tyranny of wealth and eliminating worry from your life. Let's take time to pray before we jump in. Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you that they are challenging to us. 
that they can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. That they can expose our human nature. Above all else this morning, as we read these words and as I add some commentary, would we know that we are loved by you, like seriously loved by you, that as we sit in the pew this morning or out in the foyer or at home online, would we just take a breath and rest in that truth that Jesus, you love us. So Holy Spirit, use me, speak through me this morning. Would you be present in this room? And would you highlight things that might help us in our week to week? In your name we pray, amen. So through verses 19 to 24, Jesus makes one thing very clear. His kingdom, it can't just be supplementary in our lives. It can't just be an add-on. His way and his causes aren't just supposed to be accessory. So following Jesus and being a citizen in the kingdom of God, it has demands on what we do and what we think, how we act, and who we serve. We need to remember that. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the first obstacle that Jesus is noticing is very common in the human condition that he wants to address is treasure. Treasure, our money, our resources. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he's speaking to this innate desire for humans to store and collect things. I don't know if you notice that in yourself, this desire to store and collect and keep things. Jesus makes it very, very clear that all of that which we store and collect and keep for ourselves, these material goods, these resources, our treasures, they're destined for destruction. They're going to fade away. And so Jesus kind of uses this language because it wasn't uncommon in his time for the affluent and the wealthy to, on their property, on their land, have a, a barn solely for the purpose of storing their extra stuff. They would just stack up their, their food, their um, goods, their treasures in this barn. It sounds kind of familiar. Most people during Jesus' time, they had just enough to put food on the table and to put a roof over their heads. It was a sign of huge wealth to have a barn where you could store your extra things that were just left over. So, here, Jesus, he's simultaneously speaking to the wealthy, the rich, the affluent, but also the poor. To the poor, he says, you don't need to long for treasure that's going to waste away. It's going to fade. And to the rich, he says, you've, you've likely made your investments in the wrong place. It's time to change that. And to both of them, he says, your worth is not in your acquisitions. That's what he's saying. So in these first few verses, Jesus' challenge is to invest in kingdom ventures. Invest in kingdom ventures. By doing that, you ensure that your allegiance is to Jesus and not to your treasure. Not to your wealth. Not to these material things that are going to fade. And so, what does Jesus mean when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Here's what Jesus isn't saying that there's some 
kind of reward system where if you're on your best behavior, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a pot of gold waiting for you and a bigger room than your neighbor, more food and all this stuff because you kind of did the extra thing. That's not what he's saying. There's no kind of, you know, kingdom reward system. And I feel like so, many, so often Christians, we've twisted this passage into that kind of thing. And it's just wrong. That's not what Jesus was saying. So in order to really catch what Jesus is saying, we need to look deeper into Jesus' life. Where did he store his treasures? Where did he make his investments? And first thing we notice is that Jesus invested in his relationship with the Father. He made time. He put an effort with his relationship with the Father. And second, he invested in people. Everywhere he went, he made the absolute most out of the encounters that he had with people. He made huge investments in the life of people. Those are kingdom investments that we're meant to emulate. They don't decay. They don't waste. They don't fade away as opposed to these other material things. Um, my pastor growing up, his name was Mark Buchanan. He told this story that always stuck with me just because it was kind of jarring. And this was how it went, was that there was um, an affluent man who had recently passed away, in, actually in the city of Vancouver. And this man, he, uh, he had so much. Like, he had all the boats, um, all the toys. He had a great golf score, all these things. But wasn't known as a terribly good guy. Like, when it was time for his funeral, there were few people there. And during the funeral, different people went up to go speak about this man's life. And really all they had to say was, oh, like, literally, like, this was, this was his golf score. It was pretty good. And these were the cars he drove. And this was, this is some of the adventures he had and um, some of the cool people he got to meet. And the man who was officiating this funeral, he's a, he was a contemporary of my grandfather's. He was an Anglican priest known as this call-it-as-it-is kind of guy. And he had this, he was a big man, he had this deep, gravelly voice. And once one of the, one of the friends or whatever was done speaking, he left his paper up there with the notes, and uh, the priest went up there and just held the paper like this and looked at it. And he just went, all these things. All these things mean nothing if you don't know Jesus. And people sat there curious, probably a little shaken up by that experience, but he was trying to communicate something. Mark 8, 36, Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So, verse 22, Jesus transitions to a word on the eye. Word on the eye. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I think at first look, this is a bit of a confounding word from Jesus. It's difficult to try and understand what he's trying to say. 
for his listeners, you can imagine as he's preaching this sermon, it actually, what he was saying, the language he was using, it was quite familiar. In the Old Testament, there was um, an idea of the evil eye versus the good eye. The evil eye versus the good eye. The evil eye only perceives what will serve himself. Only what will fill their selfish desires. Only looks for what will further them and their cause. The good eye perceives what God is doing in the midst. Sees what God is doing in the midst. What God is up to. Thus filling them with light. And so Jesus reminds his listeners, he says, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. A healthy, good eye will see what God is up to and be filled with light. An unhealthy, evil eye will be blind to what God is doing, will not perceive what God is doing in their midst, and be subject to what theologian Douglas Hare calls a twilight existence. That's a heavy word, but it's so true. That when we do not perceive what God is doing in our midst, we live in the twilight zone. It's just dark. We go through the motions and we just don't see it. Jesus talks about that all, all, all the time. He says, you know, whoever has eyes to see, like, do you see it? Do you perceive it? Do you understand it? So many people didn't and so many people today still don't. It's the twilight existence. It's dark. So, those who have allegiance to Christ and his kingdom have an eye for what he is doing and how to participate in his work. And that fills them with light. So the apostles, they got this. When they spent time with Jesus, they, they learned what Jesus' behavior was like, what he would do in, in given situations. And so when Jesus ascended and he was no longer with them, you can see in the book of Acts, the apostles, they had this eye for what Jesus was doing in their midst. And they would be walking in step with the Spirit, as Paul writes. They would see what he was up to. And I know people like this in my own life. I think of my mom. When we were at church growing up, my mom, we would sit at the back. And my mom, you can just tell, she was just like perceiving things. She just knew what God was up to. And after the service, she would look for people to pray for them. And she would pray with them and you would just see breakthrough. Like just really seeing what was happening. The good eye versus the evil eye. The eye that fills us with light versus the eye that leads us to twilight existence. So, verse 25. Before Jesus hits the topic of worry, he makes a key point in an effort to communicate his followers that in his kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, he's the king. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or, to be de or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you have a master, then this is applicable to you. Jesus makes it very, very clear that everybody has a master. One of... Um, the devil's biggest strategies in deceiving us 
is to get you to believe that you are the master of your own life. Because that's when he imposes his will. You, you have a master. It's up to you to decide who that master will be. But you can't have two of them. So in this case, Jesus is making the point about wealth. He says, you cannot serve God and serve wealth at the same time. You can't be ruled by God, follow Jesus, but also endlessly chase wealth. It doesn't work that way. Um, the word in Aramaic, um, which is actually the language that Jesus spoke, there was this funny, um, awkward moment one time where uh, the, the president of Israel was in a meeting with the Pope, and I think just kind of to get some common ground, the president was like, oh, and Jesus, Jesus spoke Hebrew, and the Pope goes, oh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, Aramaic, Aramaic. And so Aramaic, this is the language that Jesus spoke and the people around him spoke. And he uses this word for wealth or money. The word is mammon, mammon. He uses this word as, a, as this material resource, but he also uses this to describe some sort of animated idol that people subject themselves to. They pursue for personal gain. They worship to elevate themselves. Mammon. Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. And so just as it is in our world today, wealth was deified in Jesus' time. It was made a God. There is such a feverish desire for wealth today. It is insane. If you were on social media, it feels like sometimes every third or fourth video is some sort of, you know, get rich quick scheme that's meant to stoke this fire deep within human beings to get rich. It's so wrong. And so many people are falling into this pursuit of mammon. But I want to make something very clear. It's not, it's not a sin to make a lot of money. It is a sin to be ruled by your money. The desire it can master us, it can dictate our lives in every single way. We tell ourselves, this is what Douglas Harris says again, that we have chosen to serve Christ and his kingdom, but in our daily life it is mammon, that ancient idol that sets our priorities and determines our choices. Jesus does not share a throne with mammon. He will not. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, love of money, love of mammon, it's the root of all kinds of evil. For some of us in the room, uh, we have let our bank accounts have the first say over the Father. And if you feel like that's you, if you feel that conviction this morning, it really is not too late to enthrone Jesus in your life, to, Jesus, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It is not too late. And so even this morning, there's opportunity for you to really come to Jesus and to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've deified wealth in my life. I want to make you master. 
I want your thoughts to be my thoughts. I want your desires to be my desires. I want to make you master in my life. So, verse 25. Are you with me, church? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who seek all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Um, I am your quintessential proverbial warrior. There are so many experiences and opportunities that I've missed in my life, to be completely honest, because I worry too much. It's something I, I really do struggle with. Um, when Larissa and I first got married, um, we were living in Vancouver, and I had heard of quite a few break-ins in the area into homes, and um, that caused a lot of worry in my life. Um, out of this kind of desire to protect risks and to make sure that we had a safe home, Every night before we went to bed, I would go, I'd lock the doors, and I'd make sure all the windows were closed and, all the, and locked and all this stuff. But I would wake up probably like three or four times in the night, and I would worry. And I'd get up, and I'd go check the door again, and I'd make sure it's locked. I'd go check the windows just to make sure. And it just, it just caused a lot of sleepless nights. That worry kind of controlled me. Um, we also recently, we were dog-sitting, and um, I decided I was, I was going to take this dog-sitting seriously. And so here we were, we were sleeping over at some friends of ours, their home, and their dog um, was up in the night. And every time, I, I just kind of worried about it. Every time it would make a noise, I would, like, wake up and be like, is it okay? Like, what's happening? It, it kind of sounds ridiculous, but that's what was happening. And I would check on it, and then I would go back to sleep, and Rissa would just be like, let it go, let it go, the dog's okay, it's just a dog, like, it's okay, and I'd be like, oh, just want to see, so I think a baby should be no problem. <laughs> um, what, I've, what I've figured out in my life is that worry, it can be just as ruthless a master as wealth, like a brutal, brutal tyrant in our lives. 
today we, we actually don't have to look too far to see what's feeding our worry. Um, a lot of us, we spend time in the news. We spend time in the media, and, and we spend time on social media especially, and it's feeding our worry. And I know so many people who have actually set up boundaries in their lives, and they fast from the news because they've noticed, man, this just makes me worried. And it's ruling my life. Psychologists, they've, they've coined this term meta-worry. Meta-worry, which is when we worry about our worrying's effect on our life. And that is common today. You worry about your worrying. It's just perpetuating itself. And so our mind, it worries in this attempt to protect us from potential threats, potential danger. But what ends up happening is it just destroys our lives. This constant worrying. I don't know if that's you this morning. But I know that I, for me, I often go back to this text, this word from Jesus, this teaching. For guidance when I worry. I, I really want to invite you to do the same. If you're someone who worries in your life, this is a teaching from Jesus that is so grounding. If we seek first the kingdom of God, worry, it loses its power. It does. It completely loses its mastery over our lives. So this passage is beautiful and it's poetic. Jesus points us towards the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And how the Father tenderly cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And asks us, are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? We could read this through an ecological lens. Allowing the images of the birds and the lilies of the field to direct our gaze towards God's relationship with his creation and how beautiful that is. We could read this through a justice lens as well. And I love what Douglas Hare says about that. He says, like the birds, the poor did not sow or gather into barns, but were dependent on uncertain wages and as day laborers and, and on charity. And the passage assures the poor that in God's sight, they are of more value than the birds and the lilies whose life exhibits God's continuing care. Yet how is God's care for the poor to be experienced? Not by manna from heaven, but through human instruments. The affluent, who have no need to be concerned about daily needs, are summoned by the passage to identify with those who must be so concerned and to seek ways of incarnating, incarnating God's bias in favor of the poor. And through a celebratory lens, we can read this passage as well. And so it invites us to look at the lilies of the field, the birds of the air, and how they point towards the glory and majesty of God. It draws us into worship. So the skeptic might say, birds do go hungry. Let's just face it. They go hungry and they die. Lilies, they do, they get trampled on. They wither. What's the big deal? Why is this passage important? How is what Jesus is saying legitimate? Really, that's not where our focus is meant to be on this passage. Although that is true, our focus is meant to be on the imagery that God is using, that Jesus is using. To say that we are to be as dependent on God as the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. 
we are to be as dependent on God as the birds of the air and as the lilies of the field. Dependent. That's like a curse word in our culture. We hate being dependent on someone else. But Jesus is saying, this is what you got to do. You've got to be dependent on the Father. Just as the birds and the lilies are. He's trying to posture us towards God's providential care instead of this frantic, endless pursuit of life's necessities. He's challenging his followers to another level of trust in him. So as listeners, we're supposed to follow this thread that Jesus is on throughout his sermon. And as he talks about eliminating worry from our lives, he still hasn't lost the core um, of what he's teaching, which is kingdom first. Kingdom over wealth and worry. And so this passage helps us to view our relationship with wealth from a more distanced perspective. Despite verse 33, we know that our money problems will not all be solved by this relationship or reliance on God. Even Paul, whose confidence in God was unmatched. He often went starving with no roof over his head. What Paul learned from his suffering was that God was greater than his needs. God was greater than his needs. And by seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, we do not adopt this otherworldly view of wealth but we assess wealth's usefulness in relation to other more serious matters, such as the ecological crisis on our planet or the suffering of the poor. Worry, it doesn't add a single hour to your day. It doesn't add a single dollar to your bank account. It's time wasted, Jesus says. It's time wasted. What's implied here is that when, we, when we're fixed on him and his kingdom, our time is redeemed that was once wasted and our worries fade away. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and join me. Seeking the kingdom first means putting Jesus first in your life. When we actually, when we look introspectively, how many of us can really honestly claim that Jesus is first in our life? We need to be really, really honest with ourselves. Is Jesus first in your life? Or is worry your master? Or is wealth? your master. We need to fill our thoughts with his desires. We need to take his character for our pattern. To serve and obey him in all things. We can't wing this. Following Jesus, you cannot wing it. It's not one of those side things, this accessory in your life. It takes every bit of us. So, if you're here this morning and you're wondering if the kingdom 
of Christ is first in your life, here are a few questions I want you to ask yourself. And I want you to take these home, write them down in your journal, talk about them at the dinner table, whatever you need to do. Number one, how often do you indulge yourself before giving to others? Number two, do you feel a greater sense of fulfillment when you collect a paycheck or when you spend undistracted time with Jesus? And number three, does uncertainty in your life lead you to worry or lead you to prayer? Those are just a few helpful questions you can ask yourself that give you a bit of an idea of where you're at. We cannot be ruled by wealth and worry and still claim to be kingdom-centered people. If we claim that Jesus is Lord of our lives, we have to act like it because Jesus is worth it. You have to ask yourself, do I find Jesus compelling? Jesus is the most beautiful, the most holy, the most compelling, worth every bit of our life, every bit of our time, to be the one master in our lives. Let us pray together. Lord, thank you for this challenging text. Thank you that you're with us and that ultimately we want to land on this, this spot, that Jesus, you're worthy. You are so worthy. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.